Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to the third episode of Wicked Little Town, a matinee cast presentation of audio postcards dedicated to TIFF, the 45th annual Toronto International Film Festival, happening right now until September 19th in my hometown of Toronto, Canada. Today, as I sit here, it is the afternoon of day seven. We are about to enter the second weekend of this festival. Time does fly. I know time Time just seems to fly in general these days and stand still and move backwards. But here we are, seven whole days of festival behind us. And I'm really excited because today I do get to catch up with um, a fellow movie lover who I haven't seen in a while. It's 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 strange to see that I'm actually reconnecting with people in this time where we're all kind of, you know, doing the opposite of connecting. One of my favorite people to talk to, um, the host of Saturday Night Sci-Fi on Twitter. Carolyn Hines is here today. How are you, Carolyn Hines? I'm okay. I'm good. I've been enjoying it. It's weird, but I've been enjoying it nonetheless, you know, quarantine and all that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that probably actually should have been their their tagline for tif- for this year. TIFF 45. It's weird. Basically, yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have both seen an incredible film that we're going to talk about off the top of this show. Um, both uh, Carolyn and I have seen Regina King's feature film debut, which, you know, she has uh, directed several projects in the past, several uh, TV shows, several small documentaries, but this is her feature film, like, grand coming out debut, uh, One Night in Miami, which is a fictional account of a conversation between four legends of color uh, the night after Cassius Clay won the heavyweight championship uh, back in the 60s. Um, I haven't actually really talked to you about this film. I just kind of noticed that you had seen it. I wanted to talk to you about it. What did you make of One Night in Miami by Regina King? I loved it. Um, to me, it's a great debut film. She knew that she had to like make her mark with this favorite debut film, and she absolutely did that. That casting. This is one of those films where I see um, a category for casting director. Yeah. And for all the films that I've seen so far, and even I would say in the last couple of years, this is some of the best casting I've ever seen. Like the actors are these people. Like I believe them and. And the, I love the way she shoots the film. I love the conversations and the way they feel. Like, we know the script is based on um, a stage play that was written. And the, the, the screenplay for the film is also written by the same writer. And let me look up his name because I, I can't remember it. But it's a really good film. And you can it feels like a stage play, but still not at the same time. Because things that are adapted for screenplays they don't work. I love the conversations. I love how she shoots the film. I love the aesthetics of everything. And yeah, it was a great film. It was my first film for the festival and I'm glad I made that my first film. This was my second film and it was only because it wasn't available on on the first night. Otherwise, this certainly would have been right where I went for for my first shot. Um, the, The screenwriter, by the way, is Kemp powers he wrote the play too uh that it's based on kemp uh, and i mean kemp would have had a really big year because kemp also wrote uh soul the upcoming uh pixar film that's just kind of waiting in limbo like so many films are right now but yeah between powers mm-hmm. script and the acting of these four incredible uh, men that they brought together. Um, Kingsley Ben-Adir, Ili Gori, uh, Aldous Hodge, and Leslie Odom Jr., none of whom are 
you know, this is going to sound like a dig, but I really don't mean it this way. None of these guys are exactly what I'd call A-list. You know, like, you don't, you don't see these guys in, like, franchise films is what I'm trying to say. So I do like that we're going deeper down the bench and seeing that there's so much talent out there just waiting for their shot at a role like this. Like, I kind of never really liked that term because there are some fantastic actors who should be on what we would call the A-list. Yeah. But they don't because the thing in Hollywood is they're so... They've made a habit of recycling the same actors all the time. Like you're seeing Millie Bobby Brown, you're like you're gonna start to see Millie Bobby Brown in a lot more films. And when you have actors like um, Alice Hodge and Leslie Odom Jr., like they're fantastic actors and they've done amazing work on 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 like like television shows and even in smaller films. And to me, they're a list because the like some the acting that they put on is way way better than some of what we've seen in some Oscar nominees. Some and yes, that's she. But um, yeah, they were amazing. Like I, I would say for me, um, if they deserve nominations for sure in the Emmys of the Globes, and I would give um, Kaylee Benedict the, the Oscar for Best Lead Actor. I wonder if they would be considered lead or if they would all be supporting actors because they all have equal screen time. Yeah, but he was fantastic as Malcolm X. Like he blew me away. Yeah, I mean, it's the 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 crazy thing about a film like this for everybody involved, like you know, for for Regina King and for these four men for sure, is especially when it comes to what Kingsley Benadire did with Malcolm X and what El Gori did with Muhammad Ali. You are playing men who not only have we seen film of over and over and over and over, but we've seen iconic. Uh, film performances already by men like Denzel Washington and Will Smith, and it's like you're not trying to mimic, you're, you're you're trying to embody these men, but without turning it into pastiche. You know what I mean? And both of them do, like you said, such a good job of of getting into the heart and soul of men like Malcolm X and Cassius Clay. Yeah, I agree because as you mentioned, like these four men in particular are are people that we know as we've either seen them on film or even as Odom Jr. playing Sam Cooke, where you know Sam Cooke's voice. The thing with people like um, Malcolm X and Cassius Clay, who he was known at that time, at that time, but who we came to know as Muhammad Ali, is not only are they extremely well known for who they were as people, as individuals, but what they, how they acted. So like, they were very, um, they were very charismatic men. And they were very, um, like the, almost the way that Muhammad Ali was very um, sure in the way he spoke and the way he behaved and like how he behaved in the ring and out of the ring. And Malcolm X, like, he gave speeches with his hands and like the little things he did, like adjusting his glasses was something that he always did and playing with his tie. And yes, we've seen that in film, but I think what this what makes one in Miami so well done, and this is where Kudos has to go to. Regina King as a director because she would have known when to tell them, okay, you're a bit too far. Yeah. Like, let's not stray to them to Denzel Washington territory. Like you don't even watch them, you don't make comparisons to the other to the other actors that you've seen. Like never once when I was watching the film did I say, Oh, he did that kinda of like Denzel Washington. Oh, he did that I never once did that. And I think that's the mark of a fantastic actor and director. Like she knew how to like keep keep it as what she wanted it to be. 
Definitely. I mean, what I love as well about this movie is um, in the background of TIFF, I've actually been spending a lot of time watching on TCM um, the, 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 the documentary series Women Make Film. And the, the whole point of that uh, documentary series has been to say that women don't make strictly women's film. Women just flat out make film. And here you have, you know, an, a prime example. You have a, a woman of color making a, a film about four men of color and the way they speak to one another, you know, behind closed doors. That to me is, is just a beautiful embodiment of just what's possible if you give more um, more women, first of all, and more women of color, a chance behind the camera. Oh, oh for sure. Because the thing is, this is the thing that I think, that I find Hollywood still is still struggling with. And like we, and when we talk about representation, we always we talk about like people of color and black women and black male directors having the opportunity. Also, about the, the type of films to get to there because she essentially directed an, a sports movie and a drama because the first one of the first big things in the film is an action film. And then you have people like Gina Prince Blythewood. Who did um Oh the old guard? The film. Yes, the old guard. Oh my gosh, both of you and I were like, wait, what? <laughs> yes, the old guard, so you that part. Um but then you also have like Halle Berry. I wish I got to see Bruce, but I got snatched up by Netflix quickly. But you have these women who can direct these films about different topics and they and they give them a perspective that women that women as directors and screeners can give that male directors can't because even if you were to give one in Miami to be directed by a man, I think the, the outcome would be completely different. The way how, the, how she directs the conversations and the way the directions flow would be extremely different. Women that are characters that were written and directed by men, like Park Chang Woo, is like, like Lady Vengeance and The Handmaid's Tale are like two are like, you know, like two of my favorite films. And it's all about how you understand humanity and it's all about how you understand individuals. And I think Regina King understood the humanity of these four black men and the time they were in, but she understood them as individuals and what, and, and she gave a very, to me, a very um, unique perspective to this conversation and a very unique perspective to how she directed it. I love the way she directed this film and I would love to see her, what else she, what else she does after this. Cause I, like we say, I, people say, I would love to see her direct an astral film. Sure, but I'd love to see her do another dramatic film where you have a very intimate conversation between like, like different people. Like, that would be interesting to see how she does one with women or one with um, the children, like, a, like a, a film about kids or whatever. That would be interesting to see. And that is the encouraging thing going forward is once somebody gets a chance to see then what else they do after they get that chance. Like, you know, do, do they get kind of put into a box of, well, they can only tell black stories or they can only tell dramatic stories or just they can tell stories. Like what story do they choose to do next? And I'm really going to be interested, like you say, to see where Regina King goes forward. Like, I mean, woman's on fire lately between Neil street could talk and between Watchmen last year. And, and now this it's like, you know, just, Get out of her way and let her keep on going because this is an incredible run by this woman. Exactly. And the thing about um, where, where people say um, black people directing black stories, sometimes we have films by black directors and like, they don't work, right? And Or you have TV shows, I can name a few, but I won't. I can be shady. I'll say blackish. Uh, <laughs> and those shows that are about black families directed and written by, or I should say show run by, by black people. 
are stereotypical, are just as stereotypical as if they were being done by someone who isn't black, right? So it's not just to say about where you have to say, oh, this person of this ethnicity or race has to direct this project. It's all about if what if they understand the story they're being told, if they understand the audience. So that's another thing. Like people can make films about like I'll use Mulan as a, as an example. It is a story, even though they're like, and it, and it's so, this Mulan is such an interesting situation for me because the 1988 cartoon is was written by white was written by white men directed by white men the score was by a white man and it's but and for people who are who are of asian descent or chinese that to them still is a kind of representation that they that they relate to for an asian character but then you have this film which is once again directed by a white woman all the studio all the all the there are the all the department heads are white over white people the score the director is scored by a white man and the costume that presented was white but and all the cast is asian but all the cast is, being asian is not enough yeah. right because the people who are making the film doesn't understand their audience and doesn't understand the story being told but you can you can this and this could have happened probably with an asian director you can never know but the thing is it's about understanding who you're making this film for understanding your cast and understanding the history and that's where you have where you can have like the cartoon which is which is beloved <laughs> by all around the world you have the film adaptation which is people is like a flop for me this person was a flop and, and that and it can show you like it's all about understanding right it's all about how you it's all it's all about how you see what's going on and it's all about how you like if you have respect for the for the story that you're telling as well and for someone like Regina K, she has, you can tell she has respect for for these individuals and for these men and for what this, and for the audience, because I never once felt like she was pandering to the audience, right? I never once felt that she was uh, making a message with what they're saying is something that plays them up, right? It's not like, it's not a preaching film, as people say, because you don't have to appreciate about a message that you already know, right? And, and I think that's the beauty of it. it like, it just is. And and is and it is what it is, and I guess I just love the film for that. Like, it's up to her. Yeah. Kudos to her. It's it's crazy because I mean, you know, you get this film that stands in stark contrast to movies like, you know bombshell or vice that are clearly meant for you know liberal audiences to get enraged again at recent history and yet those films largely do not work because like you said like you're saying like they pander they kind of turn their characters into caricatures that's not what this movie was trying to do one night miami very easily could have you know tried to enrage the base but instead it's just like we're just going to tell this story we're going to have these men talk to one another and hold each other to account and not drag the audience into it we're just going to let you in and watch this and we're not necessarily going to pander to you like some of these other movies does and that i think is what makes this movie work so well i can't wait for audiences to get a chance to see it i'm really glad that amazon prime uh picked it up so that a lot of people are going to get a chance to see it soon i do think it's unfortunate that a lot of people i mean including myself um didn't get a chance to see this in a theater because this movie is handsome 
and really deserves to be seen in a theater. Um, but One Night in Miami, um, obviously an amazing movie that we both really hope that yeah, people listening get a chance to check out soon. Um, what else have you seen this week? What's something else that's really got your attention? We, we've talked an awful lot about Nomadland. I don't know if you saw that or not, but um, besides Nomadland and, and One Night in Miami, what's, what's kind of got its hooks into you this week? A movie stood out to me is 40 Years a Prisoner by Tommy Oliver. It's a documentary. I've seen An Old Lady by In Song In Song Ye. It's a Korean um, drama and it's about um, elder abuse. And, I, and I've seen Under the Open Sky. That one is a Japanese film by New in Shikawa. And that film broke me. It absolutely broke my heart. It's a beautiful film. Like this, I understand the story, but the ending got to me. And and there's also um, Beans by Trace D. Dare. Um, it's a Canadian film. It's about um, the Oka, Oka crisis in um, the mid-80s in Montreal. And it's about the First Nations that were trying to protect this property, this piece of land that, that, um, that developers wanted to a uh, golf course. And they were like, no, we're not having it. And not into then it turned into this big um, protest where they were like saying we will not we will protect our land and it, and it's told from documentary footage but it's also told from the perspective of this young girl and I think it's amazing that Tracy who lived through that as a child like she's it's kind of like some biographical and is telling some a story like this from the perspective of really do we get films about these big moments in history told from the perspective of young people, of children, right? We usually get from the adults. And it, it was great seeing it from this perspective of a young girl who's to see her identity as a, as a as an indigenous person in, in Canada. Yeah, that movie, I was, um, that's, that's one that I was really looking forward to talking yeah. about today, so I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, really hit me hard. That film understands coming of age. That film understands stakes like true stakes um you know it, it's it doesn't hurt the fact that bean's mother is pregnant through most of the movie so you have kind of this walking talking time bomb in the middle of this very very tense and potentially violent clash um i love the fact that this film is coming out now because um, you know, in Canada, we like to believe that we are um, a, a respectful nation, a tolerant nation, and a film like Beans likes to raise its hand and say, have you forgotten? Because it wasn't that long ago that something like this happened, where an entire summer had two communities basically going at odds, and the white people surrounding this, this Mohawk community not needing much to really tip over into some very, very vile hatred. Uh, yeah, that, that was one of the things, and I, I was speaking to this yesterday because I did a podcast episode for, for my podcast and we did a bit, because I was talking about how when I saw this film and, and also a couple of others, like, um, Get the Hell Out, where, and also A 40 Years a Prisoner, where so much of what happened in the past is being, is being reflected now, with like the protests and where and where people there's a, there's also even a point where people who are oppressed are going to stop and say enough is enough and that's basically what happened um, with the Oka crisis like they were like this is they're like enough is enough because you have all of this land you got you are you're all, all your colonizers and you have all this and this is your, can you leave this 
this piece of land and they're like this is sacred to us this is not just um a piece of land like they're like it has meaning for us and it, and it has meaning for our generation and they're like enough is enough and and it, and it, it kind of reflected to what like for black people like when we always come to them we're like we're tired like we how more do you expect us to take and there was some very and when and then when you look at beans who's the the, the main protagonist is she's a young girl and she's about, I think she's about 14, 14, 15. And she's seen this. And one of the things that really stood up for me is like her frustration with, with her parents and other the other kids around her. And she's caught in the struggle of turning into a teenager. And, and then, and she's like having to find her identity in this moment of extreme violence and upheaval. And it, it's, it's, and then and it's like when she she get her eyes opening way about how society can do and so she's at this moment where she's caught between discovering who she is as an as a girl as an indigenous person and as a Canadian and also as her parents children like she has all of these things going on around her and it's just like imagine growing up in a time like that and I and I thought about growing up in the civil rights of like if my mom she, my parents grew up in Barbados, but I, but my dad spent some time in the states during the civil rights movement, and is and I just imagine like being an adult is one thing, but being a child or a teenager, and you have all of these things that are happening. Your parents are still as need to be respectful and be civilized. Yeah. yeah. All these rules, and like, why should I follow the rules? Normally, you, you you this is the age of rebellion. I want to rebel against you naturally because that's what I want to do as a teenager. Now you want me to also not rebel during this time when I'm watching everyone else rebel too. But I thought that was really interesting to see um, because I've never seen it in a film, um, in a historical um, documentary about something that's ever seen one teachable from the perspective of a, of a child. Yeah, I mean, that's that, that comes up within the course of this movie is um, when we get into, like, the second or third act, um, Beans and her mom and her sister have managed to move away from the reservation because, you know, the, the, the feeling is that things could turn violent at any moment. So the Mohawks uh, try, make a, basically get the, the women, children, and the elders out of the community. Um, and they're, you know, they're, she, now they're kind of in this assimilated area like they're they're basically sharing a motel um with like whoever happens to be passing through including including the white quebecois who happen to be passing through and sure enough beans has a blow-up with this one random white girl and her mother loses it on her and she says you know don't you understand that right now the eyes of the whole country are on us and we have to act above it all otherwise we are just going to go and make everything worse and you're thinking in your head of course she doesn't understand. She's 13. You know, like no teenager should have to deal with this shit. They should just be able to be teenagers and, you know, spout off if some girl gives her side eye while she's playing pinball. She should be free to do that. And yet, you know, there's there's this added responsibility onto this, you know, this Mohawk girl at this particular time in history that she didn't ask for. It's an amazing movie um, that I really hope uh, a lot of people get a chance to see. I, I That's certainly one of the ones I love the most. Um, tell me a little bit more about 40 Years a Prisoner, because that's one that I did not see. Okay, so 40 Years a Prisoner is a documentary about, um, directed by Tommy Oliver and it's Mike Africa Jr., whose parents in prison in 1989 after the after the move organization which his parents are part of 
was um, basically um, uprooted and their and their headquarters had destroyed and raided by the Philadelphia police. And a cop died during the raid. And the judge, who was extremely racist, um, sentenced nine of the members, none of whom were directly involved with the, the cop's death, to 30 to 100 years in prison. Jesus. And so my mother was pregnant with him at the time. So he was born in prison and he was raised by family and got to his parents as a young child. And for his entire adult life, he has spent his time gathering this monumental amount of evidence about the case and about the MOVE organization and about the Philadelphia police and their, and the near that time, who was extremely racist. And he was doing everything he can to find any evidence to get his parents um, exonerated or really suffer role. And it finally happened in 2018 for his mom and 2019 for the dad. And eventually all the remaining members were released earlier this year, 2020. And so the documentary, um, well, it goes, delves very deeply into what happened on, on that particular date in August. I think it was August 26, 1979. But all of the events leading up to it, because what had happened leading up with the Philadelphia, like the fact that the move organization was one that was founded by this man called um, John Africa, um, John Africa, and they, these people believe in living off the land, eating like clean food, um, human rights as well as animal rights. So they didn't believe in secure animals like dogs or whatever, and they also believe in their children, in children being to be children as they're young. So like they have this house in Philadelphia and they use it as a community for their for their in the fact that they to regular society, but they were they believe in that everyone should go back to basics as, as we would say. And eventually it came to this thing where the where Frank Rizzle and the, and he was using the police as his sledgehammer kept going after these people. And it all just came to head on that day where this cop died and under extremely suspicious circumstances. I personally believe he was killed by friendly fire and it was just an horrid abuse of power and miscarriage of justice and it's a really well told document, it's a really well made documentary and the amount of data that they collected to make this feels like phenomenal and I'm bringing like, the personal stories from the people who were, moved, mem who were moved, members of the MOVE um, organization then and also family members and reporters and then when we look at people who, because he has interviews with like people who were police at that time, who were actually part of the raid, and journalists, and uh, this gentleman, he was, he's the, at the, at the time of the country being made, I think he was the, the DA of Philadelphia, and he was related to the, I think it was a prosecutor that was, that was a part of the trial. I think he's just, so like, you have all of these connections to the film, and it's a very, and I think that's one of the things that did a documentary. I haven't really seen other documentaries where you have the person who was a prosecutor on trial and you have his son who's a sitting DA huh. giving his perspective as the son of his, his dad. And because the thing that they did to these people, they literally tried to starve them out of their home, right? Oh, wow. they, um, they barricaded, they formed this massive blockade around their house and they turned off their water. Their electricity stopped people, stopped the members from leaving the premises and stopped people from going in. So they couldn't get food and they had children. So they tried to start, literally attempted to starve them out, out of their home. And when a lot of what happened in Winkle and also what happened with Apple. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And all, and also with what's happening over the course, like the, the, the strategies they use, and I just kept thinking, like, how do these officers sleep, sleep at night? Well, if like, you could not have a conscious where you, your, your job is to stand in front of a house and tell people you can't bring food to these children, you can't bring food to these people, like, what? Yeah, it's a, it's right? a, it's a deceptively violent tactic. Like it, uh, you know, by the letter of the law, it's not violent, but at the same time, it's you know, it's it's incredibly uh, inhumane as a tactic to to you know get your opponent to show their hand. I I, I just love to pick his brain about this film and what what happened in the film and all the things that things about and what's going on now because he's actually one of the most well known photographers during the protest now. He's actually um, like he's like taking a lot of photos of the, the current protests, and like is I would love to talk to him about being a, a filmmaker for this documentary and not being a, a photographer. What was going on, right? And if he was ever make a documentary about going on, no, like that would be that would be super interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll de- thank you for the reminder. I'll definitely include some of Tommy Oliver's photographs in the show notes for this episode. So if you're listening and you're curious about Tommy Oliver's involvement with the uh, current events, um, take a look, and um, there'll be like some stills and a link to some of his work. Well, I've been um, ending these postcards by. Uh, you know, considering this particular festival and in relation to festivals past, I know you've gone for several years uh, to the film fest. And my, my, my question to, uh, to close out these conversations has been, what do you miss? What do you miss most this year uh, when you compare it to, to TIFFs from the years past? Um, it's the same thing that everyone is saying, just hanging around the people. Um, there, there is this like I love going to the cinema because that's one of my favorite things. But for me, it wasn't. It's not. I, I wasn't even necessarily concerned about not watching the films in the cinema. Well, the only thing about that is I get more distracted because I'm on my laptop and I have my phone in my hand. Yeah. I have to make a route. I, I try to make to not to no Twitter while I'm watching, but I can't because I'm on my laptop. And I can pause. But for me, the biggest thing is to say like not seeing the people, and because we've been in quarantine for so long, you just miss crowds and people in general. But I also have an issue with big crowd is um, different because you just stop randomly. You could be in a line somewhere, you'd just be talking about the films with complete strangers and you have you'd have these amazing about the film that you've seen or the films you hope to see. And and that's what I miss and I miss speaking with other critics pick where you pick each other's brains or or sometimes not even talking about films at all, you talk about the most random things or hanging out in the ATT with the free food. it's you know it, it's that one point on on toronto's calendar where all of the movie lovers come together including people from out of town who you sometimes only see that one time a year you know like it, it's it's that's the thing like you you get it right on when you say that you miss the people and you miss the conversations and it's it's just that little dose of contact that i think we're all really missing right now let alone tiff but certainly during tiff um we're missing that little bit of human interaction where you know people who you otherwise would not have run into or people who you wouldn't have otherwise interacted with you come together because of this common passion and you you know you you learn about each other like like 
shit, I met you because of a shared love of film. I, you know, you live on a completely other side of town from me, and I don't know if our paths otherwise ever would have crossed, but because of things like this and because of things like, you know, like the year-round light box, you get a chance to interact with people um, who, who, you know, change your way of seeing things. And yeah, I, I can totally see why that would be something that we would all be missing this time of year. Yeah, and, and <laughs> yes, of course, I, I could definitely do with some more free popcorn. That is our third postcard, our, our third Wicked Little Town. Um, TIFF is still going on uh, through the rest of this weekend, right up until September 19th. Um, we, are, we are getting uh, pretty close to the People's Choice Award, so I'll be interested to see what TIFF does with that. Um, ordinarily, that is a free screening. Uh, they haven't talked about what that may be, but I'd say, you know, if you're interested in TIFF, keep your eyes open this weekend because maybe it's something that people can watch for free online maybe it's something that they'll broadcast somewhere who knows but that uh, the whole thing is still happening up until september 19th tiff.net if you want to get in on some of the physical screenings or some of the digital screenings that's where you get everything in um carolyn where are you where's your work being published for uh, for tiff this year um for tiff my work is going to be published through my podcast so here's what happened and the interviews that i'll be doing is going to be on my sub what i call my sub podcast Carolyn Talk, um, that posted on buttwise.com. So after speaking with Diana, um, directors and industry insiders, I have one. My first one is going to be with Robin Citizen, who is the um, one of the program managers of TIP. So we will be talking about 40 years of uh, prisoner in that one. And that's my two coverage. But I also have other work like my recaps of Lovecraft Country nice there will be links for everything in the show notes for this episode so click away and uh, dig into carolyn's work because um, it's all killer um and my work of course my writings including uh on beans and um one night miami can be found at the matinee.ca but for now for carolyn hines i'm ryan mcneil we'll see you at the matinee and at tiff Dark turns and no